Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Sidney Landonson Stern whose book on the uh, Mankiewicz brothers, I have to get that correct, that's one of those things which you're going to hear throughout our conversation is me mispronouncing the names of uh, filmmakers that we all love. Sydney is a journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times along with many other publications. Uh, she has written books about uh, the games industry uh, as in the toy industry uh, as well as Gloria Steinman and now she has turned her attention to the world of movies with uh, her biography, her dual biography of Herman and Joe Mankiewicz uh, is a brilliant, fascinating read, uh, packed full of detail and anecdote and, and really interesting insight. And it also provides a, a kind of history of the 20th century as you're going through and following the lives and careers of these two incredibly talented brothers. Of course, uh, Herman Mankiewicz was the subject for David Fincher's Mank, uh, which was released a year or so ago. If you like the episode, please remember to uh, like, subscribe, do all the things that you have to do to make uh, to help me make this podcast as widely listened to as possible. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Well, I say Mankiewicz. Rosemary. Mankiewicz, okay. I say it that way. Rosemary Mankiewicz, who was Joe's widow, and, very, and was very um, sophisticated linguistically speaking, would say Mankiewicz or Mankiewicz, something like, you know, some very European and very probably accurate. Right. I, well, for consistency, I would say Mankiewicz as well. But the first question that occurred to me when I was reading this was just primarily because it's so packed. Why was it always the idea to do the two brothers together or... or... Was there ever a point where you thought, well, I could just do two separate books here because there's so much, there's so much story to tell? Well, thank you for saying that. Actually, what happened was I thought about doing a biography of Herman and I read his 1978 biography. And that led me to Joe's 1978 biography. They each had a biography published in 1978, same year. And when I finished that one, I thought, hmm, I think that the sum is greater than the two parts so I will do it together that said that's what I got the contract for but while I was working on it there was so 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 much more about Joe that sometimes I was tearing my hair and saying why did I contract for the two of them I need to do just Joe but I I soldiered on and the interesting thing has been all the attention paid to Herman even Mm. before the movie make and Joe did so many more movies. He had three wives. He had many girlfriends. He, you know, there was so much more material about Joe that I'm glad it seemed like there was enough for both of them because I think it would have been hard to just do Herman. The thing with Herman is there is a bit in the book where he sort of does take a back seat, if you like, because obviously Joe's career is taking off and his career is 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 going downhill, but he's always there as sort of like the ghost at the feast. He's always, even as Joseph is having this you know, huge success, he's always kind of got one eye behind him or to the side of him to see what his brother is doing and what his brother thinks about this. Yes, yeah, sort of ahead of him, actually. Mm. I don't know if, where you're, you are in the birth order of your families, but the oldest child, I think, sort of goes through life. It's all about me. The the oldest child is the center of the solar system and all planets are facing that oldest child. Whereas Joe always had Herman and Herman was almost 12 years older than Joe. So he was like a father figure to Joe and Joe was always measuring himself against Herman. And as I say in the book, I think that was to Joe's benefit because they were both so smart and did things so easily as as children and as young students. And Herman was lazy and frittered away a lot of his talent in life. Whereas Joe, whatever Herman achieved, Joe was competing with it. Yeah, the, that that was the feeling I got as well of Herman. You just, I just, as, especially those early chapters where he's really, you know, he's really got the, the world on a play. There's so many people who are willing to bat for him. I just wanted to shake him and, uh, and Me get too. him. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the what ifs that just sort of go on from his life um do you think what what do you think was the sort of motivation behind him sort of having that inability to sort of fully take advantage of all those of all those great options that he had available to him? well that is the question isn't it 
I mean, when I started the book, before I had done deeper research, I thought he was the quintessential writer who went out to Hollywood and hated himself for prostituting his talents and then drank himself to death. But once I got back to the earlier part of his life, I saw that he would have drunk himself to death anyway. He was already uh, has serious gambling problems, alcohol problems and everything. So I'm hesitant in writing biography to say A causes B, but so I tried to show the fathers being very cruel to him and yet so admirable that both sons wanted to please him. And Herman just was self-destructive his whole life. He went into analysis later, he dried out periodically, but he couldn't help himself. And yes, I too wish to reach back in time and shake him and go, Herman, (laughs) pull up your socks and get going here exactly he's so well liked he's so obviously likable and charming as well that he sort of uh that becomes like his defense mechanism where he can just sort of joke his way out of of even the most the worst disappointments that he that that people have in him that it's like well you can't hate him well i think it's also um he was brilliant and i think that I mean, that creates a sense of waste in all of us observing his life, too. But I I think there may also have been an element of he was a wonderful critic. He did a lot of um, excellent theater and book reviews. And I think a really good critic looking at his own work and not seeing excellence and not being willing to reach and see if his reach could exceed his grasp was part of it, too, that he was maybe afraid afraid to try too hard and then fail mm. we don't know you mentioned the, the the father figures and and um and the father looms big in in both of their in both of their lives he uh, maybe may I mean, maybe to some extent um herman sort of filters that a little bit for, for joe but i i also love the irony of the fact that he the, the father was a big a university professor and wanted you know, and that's how he framed success. And then when his daughter becomes a university teacher, is it his daughter? Sorry, I'm, I want to get this right. Yeah, Erna became a high school teacher. But... A high school teacher, yeah. And and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm not. And that's, it, 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 suddenly that, that frame of success is not uh, taken into account. Yes, they the brothers never felt they had quite succeeded. First of all, movies were looked down on in the early days. Right. So in their circles theater, no matter how silly a play was, was art. And movies were an embarrassing thing you did for the money. It's which is hard for us now that every young person I know wants to write, act in or direct movies. So, you know, it's the art form. Uh, But then the father was a a professor of pedagogy. He was a he taught teachers and he thought bringing young people along was the the most important job in the world. And of course it was very important, but there are other important jobs too. And his sons were successful, but they never really felt they had fulfilled what their father wanted them to. And he's kind of, as you said before, he's kind of quite cruel and dismissive as well. And that, um, you know, uh, and that seems to have a psychological effect on them to some degree. Well, actually, he could be very warm and he mm. was very charismatic. People loved him. Uh, there were these two gigantic dinners when he was promoted to assistant professor in middle life and then even older when he became a full professor The people like Fiorello LaGuardia and Einstein came to. So he was um, esteemed in the world. 
but he could also be horrible to them. And yes, Herman did shield Joe somewhat because by the time Joe was uh, in an adolescent, the father was totally distracted. Whereas when Herman was, the father picked on Pop, is what they called him, picked on him all the time. It was awful to him. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that, I mean, that also, I, I know what you mean by you don't want to say A is the cause of B yeah. and, and you know, that sort of kind of a Freudian simplicity that, that seems to only exist in biopics now. Um, you know, like, oh, oh, that's, which actually, I mean, leaping forward, that the Orson Welles is, uh, and Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz's um, Citizen Kane also sort of indulges in that a little bit cheaply. It, is there a sort of almost an element that the Pop's sort of acerbicness and, and sort of, does that sort of forge Herman as this wit, as, as someone who has to think on his feet very quickly, has to accommodate himself to, to situations which, in which he might not have the power just by, by wit alone? Actually, I don't think the wit came from the father. I, right. According to Joe, who wrote a piece just for his sort of own interest, I think, their mother was the good storyteller and their mother was funny. The mother is totally ignored in every other biography of, and a piece about the, the brothers. And I, as a good feminist, figured I am gonna re- I'm gonna rescue the mother. I'm gonna find out all about the mother and that is gonna be the, the differentiating factor in my book. And it did turn out to be mostly about the father. You know, common mm. wisdom when you go into a subject that you don't know anything about has an element of truth. There's always something there. There might be more, but yes, it was pop, pop, pop. Um, I think Herman developed humor the way a lot of people develop humor out of pain. You know, mm. he was he he was witty. Joe was witty too, as a way to be noticed, to be admired, etc. And that was reinforced when he was at Columbia and he was the uh, humor editor in the newspaper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Herman goes is in the army. Uh, yes. I mean, that's that's another thing I loved about this this read is how uh, how you sort of reading the, the history of the 20th century and you're reading the history of the movies as well. And that moment when, as you just just said before, that where movies are just not have no um, uh, esteem attached to them. They're just this sort of and they're kind of just working out what they are. You know, there's. That I, I'm, it's always surprising. It's, it's so quick that it has to do that. Because, I mean, you know, they're making movies in the teens and then, you know, by the 20s and 30s, they're already trying to establish it. This is this is an art form. This isn't just, uh, you know, a Magic Lantern show. Right. Although there were always good movies made. I mean, there are always mm. artistic moments because there were artistic people making them and they couldn't help but be creative. But that wasn't recognized at first because it was gone. It, first of all, it went in as a as a poor people's art form it was Nickelodeon's it was these fast little flip almost like those flip pictures so they had almost no plot at first and of course they had no sound so they had very simple stories etc but yes they evolved quickly and there were always people trying to be creative because they 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 couldn't help themselves although that that's one of the sad stories the studio systems factory system of trying to make the creative people cogs they were supposed to do their best creative work and yet have no ownership. So anything could be done with it, especially for the writers. 
Yeah, the writer, I mean, and that, that's another contrast between the theatre, because usually it's, the idea is the theatre, the writer is God, and the writer yes. is, uh, you know, and then you get to uh, the movies and you, you might get a bit more money, but you have absolutely zero control over over the product. And in fact, your name might not even appear. I mean, it's a point you make that it's almost random whose name ends up on the title card. Yes, I think there was a lot of uh, jockeying in the studio system to be last. So you, you could get your name on it. And the name had to do with being paid and getting your contract renewed. So it was very doggy dog. Even if you didn't like the final product, you wanted oh, it, It's like academia. You've got to get your publications in. <laughs> exactly. The stakes are so low, they say about academia, but the stakes were high. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, how did you, at the very beginning, we were talking a little bit about the you, you getting the contract. How did, how did you approach this? How did you come across this as, a, as an idea, as a, as a pitch you wanted to do? Well, I was a biographer looking for another subject. Some would say victim. My last biography was of Gloria Steinem. I didn't think I could ever find anybody as complicated as she to write about. So I was looking around and a friend of mine, Carl Rollison, became the series editor for University Press of Mississippi's Hollywood Legends series. And he sent out to biographers he knew, you know, an email saying we're interested in submissions. So I started, I really didn't know the movie business. I'm a, my background's journalism. It's generally, you know, jump in and learn everything you can as quickly as, as possible. So I started thinking about that and I didn't want to do an actor. I wanted to do a creative person behind the scenes. And that's how I, I thought about Herman. Her, Herman's son, Frank, was in my Gloria Steinem biography because he was mm. a political person. And I knew about Herman and Citizen Kane, of course, and the Algonquin connection, which is always interesting. You know, the 1920s are so interesting with prohibition and the flowering of the arts and the newspapers and everything. So I thought he would be interesting. And, the, and Herman then led me to Joe, which led me to the two of them. Yeah, and F. Scott Fitzgerald comes back in the story with Joe rewriting the uh, the screenplay and and kind of being trashed for it for you know his reputation being a bit uh, besmirched by that association. Yes, that was such a sad and frustrating because you empathize with your with your subjects. You know, right. I, I try to erase the boundaries and be inside your subjects as much as you can. So. I did feel terrible for Joe because Joe, both Herman and Joe were basically writers, even though Joe did a lot of directing. He directed to control what he had written, especially, you know, in the studio system when when you totally, well, I shouldn't say that. Even now, writers are always complaining. I wrote, what I wrote has no relation to what we see on the screen. Mm -hmm. So anyway, at one point, um, Joe was so successful at writing. He was a young man and he went to Louis B. Mayer when he was at Metro Golden Mayer and said, ask if he could direct what he had written to control it. And Mayer said, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk and made him a producer instead. Producing was a very high position at MGM. So it was a very big promotion, but it was not at all what Joe wanted to do. He wanted to do the creative end. So he hated being a producer, even though he was viewed as a powerful person. And he did contribute a lot of creativity to all the movies he produced. And that one, he was portrayed ever after. He had F. Scott Fitzgerald writing. And Fitzgerald, while a, you know, a wonderful novelist and short story writer, didn't write that well as a screenwriter. And Joe did a lot of changing and also brought in other writers. 
And that's when Fitzgerald wrote a famous letter, oh, Joe, can't producers ever be wrong and, you know, and complaining. And it cast Joe into this role that he didn't want to be in in the first place, the uncreative Babbitt sort of person, the, you know, the capitalist stomping on creative people. And that letter got reproduced in every Fitzgerald biography and cast Joe in the opposite of what he wanted to be and actually the opposite of what he was. So it was a very Absolutely. painful moment in Joe's life. And, and one of the things I was reviewing the book a little bit before we talked and I saw the end note where I list about four biographies, one every decade that include of Fitzgerald that included this letter of Joe. <laughs> It's in everything and in all the reviews of those books. So Joe <laughs> read it over and over and over. It's very painful. Excuse me. Why did you? Why did you um, shy away from doing? Or oh, shy away? Why? Why did you? Why did you prefer not to do an actor? Was there a specific reason behind that? Um, I just like to write about creative people and and complicated people. And I really I know about writing. I really don't know about acting. And and um, sometimes when I, I'm talking to someone who in the movie business and I'll, they'll say, what do you think of the, actually like Herman wrote a, a screenplay, Mad Dog of Europe about Hitler, trying to show the rise of Hitler. And his grandson, John Mankiewicz, who's a screenwriter said to me, is it any good before he had seen it? I said, I don't know, I can't evaluate that. I can't evaluate you know, it going up onto the screen and what you would do with it. And the, I felt that way about acting. I just felt it was a subject I could not probably write about with authority even immersing myself in what it meant to be an actor. I don't have that gene. I couldn't ever be an actor. So, I mean, so you, you a journalist uh, by profession and, and a biographer with uh, the previous experience that you, that you said of Stein, Gloria Steinman. Why, sort of give us an idea why you, why you go into, why you go into film? What, what's, the, what's the attraction for you to look at film specifically? Well, I wasn't. I wandered into film because of this opportunity. And now that I found myself there, I've come to stay. It was a very, very steep or shallow learning curve. I'm not sure what it means when you, which one you say when you have so much to learn and you have to do it quickly. But oh, yeah, it's steep then. <laughs> In that case, it's definitely okay, steep. Okay, so we're, we're doing this by Zoom and you can see all the books behind me. They're, they're film. I had to yeah. do know one film from the very beginning and really learn it the way uh, I always say if I were writing a what if I wrote a biography of a New York Yankee a baseball player I'd Mm. have there's so much lore and so much information that people who know the subject know and to to treat two people who came into that business with depth I I needed to know that so now that I've learned it all I want to write more movie biographies I love that and and, uh, you know any any uh, field is still a microcosm of its society. And of course, like World War I, I had to, yes, I had to go through the 20th century with my brothers. The wars, <laughs> econ- the prohibition, economics, the, um, the communists, the hunt for communists, all those kinds of things. Pro- a history major, and I love people. So that's what biography does. You get to do history through a person's life story. Yeah, and through the lived experience, I love that. I love that part about prohibition, which you're you're sort of you're trying to sort of understand how attitudes to drinking were were you know drinking was always a little bit naughty and a little bit cool in a way that it wouldn't be outside of prohibition. Yes, I think they they retain their sort of infantile attitudes toward it. For many of the Algonquins, they 
became alcoholics and died young. Herman was 55. Dorothy Parker was young. Robert Benchley, a lot of them died young. It was uh, Ring Lardner. It's it's crazy. It's crazy how young as well, actually. I mean, you you, you sort of uh, looking at that period of, of Hollywood as well. You know, um, everybody's constantly smoking and everybody's dead before they're 60. You know? <laughs> oh, the smoking. When you look at any old movie and everyone's smoking all the time, I just want to say, put it out, put it out. Yeah. Paul Heinrich's got two cigarettes oh. in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, supposedly that was just accidental. That wasn't, oh. I don't think that was in the script. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that that was like a trick that he used to do in like private, you know, it was like parties or something. And, so, and the director said, saw it and said, oh, yeah, let's, let's use that in the movie. Yeah, I, I, I love those stories. I love those stories. So we were, we were talking about Joe and he, uh, I mean, I think this idea of the producer as well is really interesting because, I mean, my experience in the film industry, which is relatively shallow, but I have a little bit of experience. I've always found that stereotype of the sort of um, the producer who is a philistine and is a destructive force and is always thinking of dollars and commercialism and everything to be really inaccurate. Every producer I've met has been really clever and really artistic and really engaged and really wants to make a good movie. I mean, they want to make money and they, they're realistic, but, you know, I think that's a, a stereotype that comes from, you know, maybe novelists who aren't very good at writing screenplays. Well, I don't think that's entirely true. For example, mm. Joe complained the entire time he was in the studio system and being paid very well and being provided with all kinds of excellent resources of the, you know, the set design, et cetera, et cetera. And then once the studio system was over, oh, and he complained about the producers and the, the heads of studio, how Philistine they were, et cetera. Then the studio system was over and it became corporate, like Gulf and Western owned Paramount at some point. So there really were people only concerned with the bottom line and not not creative and loving movies as the early. Um, I don't want to call them moguls because I think that's sort of racist, but the early studio heads were. Um, so then the studio system became the good old days and suddenly they looked better to Joe. So I think I think mostly people get involved in movies because they love movies, but I think they're always corporate types. And of course the people, even if they love the movies, the people having to say no, seem like they're only bottom line oriented. Yeah, I was gonna say, Joe, I would often was complaining as they did cuts in his movies. All directors complain when the cuts are made. You know, why are you taking, this is so important. Um, and they're doing it for length or, or whatever, or box office considerations, and it, they might have artistic consequences that are negative. Certainly they're negative to the directors. So it's sort of the nature of the job, but I agree with you. Most producers love movies. Yeah, guys, guys and Dolls is, is too long. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it could, you could cut a bit of that chatting out and get, get on with the songs, I, I reckon. It's so, oh, it's fun. Yes. Even Joe said it was too long, although I'm yeah. not sure what I would cut out. I did enjoy it. Yeah. Do you, have you seen the, the recent West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg uh, yes. remake? Yes. What did, what, what did you think? This is a little bit tang tangential. but Right, right. Well, I had seen the Ivo Van Hove uh, stage production, too, and I really didn't like that. It, mm. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's it had a lot of lights and and um, 
images where you would look at a screen instead of the actors. So to me, that really distorted things. And I thought this West Side Story tried to bring it up to date. So I liked it. I liked mm. it. You know, it mm. seemed long, but all movies today seem long to me. Yeah, and, I, the only reason it popped into my head is because of the idea of like uh, adding too many dialogue scenes and, you know, you know, it's only four minutes the music. longer. Mm -hmm. it, supposedly, I think it's only four minutes longer than the original. So I don't know what they did differently, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, maybe it's just my, my perception. I did love, so uh, I thought, the you know, the We Want to Live in America was amazing. You know, I loved, I loved some of the so scenes with the music. I mean, that that's, I know that I, that's probably a very basic uh, criticism, but whenever they were singing, I was happy. And when they stopped singing, I got a bit bored. <laughs> right, right. Um, talking about Joe as a director, and we will go back and, and talk about Mank and the Wells and, and all that as well, but Joe as a, as, as a director, he isn't a director I sort of think of as like having a discernible style. He's sort of a director who seems to do pretty much everything. Was there a sort of sense of style that you, that, that he represented for you or... Did you say that you think of him as having one or as not? As not having one, as being very much, uh, you know, he can do Shakespeare, he can do a musical, he can do a big historical epic, or he can do something smaller and more dramatic. Uh, but I, I, prior to reading your book, it was almost like I was sort of thinking, oh, he directed all of those. You know, that, you know it, wasn't some, it wasn't someone who I had his filmography in my head, if, if that makes sense. He would have liked that. He, mm. he, he felt the director's job was to serve the material and not be obtrusive. He, he felt any camera angle should serve the story. You should just feel the story unrolling in, in front of you. And if you thought a camera angle was interesting, he was doing, he wasn't doing his job right. You were thinking about the director. So he would be pleased by that. And I think he was interested in doing different genres. That's why he took the musical. That's why he took Guys and Dolls. It was interesting to him. And that late in life, um, there was a Crooked Man, the ironic Western that came out in 1969 or 1970. He had never done a Western. And of course, it's a very Joe Mankiewicz Western. It's ironic. It's talky, I think. 50% of it was on the cutting room floor. He had a lot more that mm. had, had, that was a, a Benton Newman script. Well, yeah, of course, we had just come off Bonnie and Clyde as well. So, uh, uh, you know, riding high. Um, I mean, you, you just said um, it, it was a Joe Mankiewicz uh, Western and, and therefore it was. So, so what, what is that sensibility that you can sort of pick on and go, ah, that's when he's really doing his thing? Well, I decided, I didn't know what I thought. Sometimes you don't know what you think till you sort of say it. And I decided, I, I love story, characters. The, the medium of movies is so visual and it can be so aural. Joe was, he utilized it only to the extent of telling stories, think ideas, stories, character, right? Mm. So it's what you would do in literature. And that's what Joe was about. And all, and he's criticized for that. He didn't use enough angles. He didn't utilize the, the um, aspects of movies that you can do with that modern movie makers do a lot. That wasn't him. He wanted to, to say something. So um, a Mankiewicz movie is witty. It's intelligent. It often has too much dialogue. I, when he did Julius Caesar, 
he and John Hausman, who was the producer, both took Shakespeare's play and reworked, tried to cut it down for a movie version. And then Joe combined them, but he did not take a writing credit because he didn't want to share a, a card with Shakespeare. He didn't think that was appropriate. <laughs> but it's, it, that's the point. It was, they're, they're thoughtful. Mm. And, they, and the other aspect that I think is laudable about Joe's work, especially the work from the 50s, especially when he was at 20th Century Fox, where he did what are my favorite movies, they last. If you watch mm. movies from the 50s, especially a movie with somebody who's not a white man, you're often cringing. And Joe's aren't cringeworthy. They really do last. You know, he, he, mm. he, he is a keeper in that way. And do, do you think that, that Herman's, I mean, Herman's filmography isn't as, put it bluntly, it isn't as impressive? I mean, he's got obviously Citizen Kane as the, as the peak of, of not only his career, but, but possibly cinema. Yes, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah, there's no comparison. Right. He, he, he never, well, I shouldn't say he never took it seriously, but he mostly never took it seriously. He would try to do in an infantile way as little as possible in, in any job. And what he wanted to be was a, a playwright. And he mm. wrote several plays. He wrote two that he was working on when he went to Hollywood. They were both flops. He later wrote another one. It too was a flop. And they're not great theater either. So I don't know what he would have been capable of. Certainly, the, he wrote the original screenplay of Citizen Kane, but it's a great, iconic movie because of Orson Welles. And I, even as Herman's biographer, I always say that. Well, I, okay, so the, the David Fincher um, film, which was scripted, I think, by Fincher's father, if I remember yes. rightly. I mean, I think it's largely been... Uh, rubbished by film historians in the sense that it's it's coming from a very dated Pauline Kael esque sort of position. Not rubbish. By the way, but... I disagree with that. I, oh, I disagree. Okay. Yeah, I think it's the um, Wells community, which is much bigger than the Herman community, and 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 deservedly so, choose to interpret it that way. But I don't think that was what it said. And I have asked people who aren't. I mean, nobody's. I'm so familiar with Herman's story and the and the making of story, but to me it was this, it was a biopic, although Fincher doesn't like that name, <laughs> that word, mm. about man at this inflection point in his career when he touched greatness, which was writing this movie that then turned out to be one of the movies of the 20th century, one of the most important. And then later on, he tried to write another masterpiece about Amy Simple McPherson, this evangelist character who was really wonderful. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Didn't, it never got made. But I felt the Mank the movie stopped and said, okay, now this I've done this. You pick it up and take it on from there. But the Wells people chose to interpret that as, as claiming too much credit for Herman. Yeah, okay. I can, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely accept that as a, as a valid, uh, a valid argument. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I, my uh, sympathies and my loyalties are divided because I'm a writer, so I'm always going to be to some extent with Herman, and I'm also a Wells, a Wellsian, a Wells fan. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to accept that, and I think this is what your book, your book does brilliantly. Actually, is that Wells was a very complicated, self fabulist as well. So anything, any version of uh, of his greatness, which just accepts at face value his own what he says, uh, is is going to be hugely inflated. You've sort of got to cut it down well, a bit. I mean, to give Wells his due, you can compare Wells's body of work with Herman's, and there is no comparison. I mean, right. he was. He is such a brilliant, fascinating character that when I was writing the chapter, I kept, there was so much Wells and I had to keep squashing it down. No, this is not a book about Orson Wells. You've got to, you know, you can't keep going on and on and on about Orson Wells, but he is just fascinating. And I had a whole shelf of Orson Wells and Citizen Kane books that, I mean, many trees were felled in, in <laughs> Orson Wells' work. He is just truly a larger than life. Uh, person and his and creative yeah so he deserves all that and i will add that people i know who aren't wells people they were sort of coming to it cold got the same impression you're saying that that it was and who didn't know the pauline kale um piece maybe i should uh, elaborate that in 1971 pauline kale who was the critic at the new yorker wrote a 50,000 word two issue piece basically resting um create creative credit from Orson Welles and handing it all to Herman. She vastly inflated the claim of, of what Herman had done and earned Wellesian's enmity forevermore, both toward her and toward Herman and toward John Hausman, who's a major, major source. Mm, yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because Joseph and also Sarah, to some degree, are sort of kind of embarrassed by how far she's gone, that, she, that it's... It, it actually it sort of shoots itself in the foot, really, by by being so overblown. Yes, well, I I, I believe that was her veiled or not so veiled attack on Sarah's to attack the mm. Auteur theory, and and Herman was the the vehicle for this attack or the weapon, I should say, for that attack, which mm. blew back, didn't succeed. No, no, no. Wells is still is fine. He's okay. I don't think even Mank. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it did any lasting uh, damage to his reputation. I, I also think though that it's a really interesting point that you make that that Wells doesn't have a screenwriter credited in his uh, in the movies that he that he's doing. That he doesn't work with with a screenwriter the same way that he did with Mank, and that kind of maybe would have been great if he had. Not necessarily continued with Herman, but continued with somebody. Because there's also a sense I feel rewatching, you know, Mr. Cardin and, and several other uh, uh, well post Kane Wells films, that he's almost always trying to recapture 
the same idea behind Kane of sort of trying to piece together a life, a confidential report and, and that sort of stuff. Well, that's the problem with early success, isn't it? Mm. He was 25 and he lived to be, let's see, 1915 to 1985. He was 70 when he died. Yeah. So yes, that's right. And, and far, yeah, far too young to uh, really, but at the same time, what a big life. What a big life. When we, so we, we go from one peak, if you like, with Susan Kane in terms of this sort of, I guess what we started talking about, the cinema as art. And you, you, could, you could look at Cleopatra as often being cited as a sort of, uh, what's the inverse of a peak, a nada uh, of, of Hollywood sort of gargantuan commercialism and, and all the rest, a waste and all the rest of it. I, I must admit, I really like Cleopatra. <laughs> Well, good. That you could also make Joe happy in that way too. Although what happened? That was a case of the producer and the and the twentieth um, century Fox taking all this footage away from Joe and cutting it down, down, down. And the editor Barbara McLean said, at four hours, it was an excellent movie. But um, they kept cutting it for theater owners. They wanted it earlier so commuters could go home earlier and cut, cut, cut. And also. Uh, Joe had wanted to do two movies, uh, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra with Richard Burton. And so, uh, and they didn't do that, of course. And a lot of Rex Harrison's excellent work got cut. So it's kind of imbalanced, but there have been recent um, remastered versions. You may have seen some of those and they're gorgeous. I mean, on the big screen, they're spectacularly beautiful. I, 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 I... I would love. I'd love to know if there was a possibility ever of getting a sort of extended four-hour cut, reassembled. Well, they keep finding bits and pieces. I think mm. uh, so. There, I I saw one in 2014. The uh, New York Film Festival did a Joseph Mankiewicz retrospective, and so I got to see a lot of these movies in the best current versions, and it was them that I saw, it, and it was so beautiful. So I don't know, they always sort of, they seem to find these things in South America too. I'm not quite sure why, but maybe there's film collectors down there. Yeah, and people who don't, you know, don't want to send back the print, so they keep it in their, in their yeah. own storehouse. I mean, that film as well, it, it's so about Hollywood. It's so about, you know, it's, a, it's not Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, it's Elizabeth Taylor as Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, you know. There's a... Yeah, it's true. And it's always blamed for the downfall of 20th Century Fox when in fact it wasn't. The, the, that, is, that was made in the late 50s, early 60s when the studio system was cratering and um, they imagined this could save 20th Century Fox, which it could not. But the idea was a blockbuster film was going to save the studio. And Joe was thrown into this. He took it on for the money. His agent said, just hold your nose for 15 weeks and take the money and run. And it took two or three years and really finished him off. He never had confidence again and was ridiculed and was very publicly fired. And while Herman had a sense of humor about himself, Joe did not. And it, he never really recovered from that. And neither did 20th Century Fox, actually. But that's another. I mean, and by yeah. the way, it eventually made its cost back. It just took a while. Every everything kind of does, doesn't it? Every everything sort of ends up making its money back. I'm pretty sure Waterworld ended up selling enough video cassettes. Oh, to... I don't know. Maybe, maybe not Ishtar. Maybe that's the only one. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm. I, 
I was reading somewhere, I, oh God, I hope it wasn't your book. Well, maybe it was your book. Um, that Spielberg, even Spielberg's like the films that are considered his biggest flops, like 1941 and Always and Amistad, they all made profits at the at the box office they're just they just weren't Spielbergian profits so they were you know but they all made their money back well it wasn't in my book but of course there are so many other ways to make money off movies now that you know they find ways and then of course there's the being you know the accounting that says the net was zero when in fact there were lots of above the line costs attributed to take away the profits yeah, so that you don't have to pay the residuals yeah. and the royalties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th that's another aspect of the book. The, the, there's a whole family story going on here that doesn't stop with the with the two two brothers in in that they're they're having their kids and their kids are getting involved in the in the in the film business and in in different ways. I mean, you kind of follow them indiscriminately. Of your you're not you know you're not only following Tom because he's a screenwriter. You're following the others as well. Uh, but I thought that was a really interesting uh, sort of family legacy that went through the book. Well, the first family legacy is that they're all really smart and they're all really witty. Mm. And um, they're also all mostly male. There are very few daughters born in Mankiewicz families. But Herman, who had one wife and three children, had two sons and then a caboose. His his daughter, Johanna, was born in 1937 and his sons were born in 1922 and 1924. So she was born when they were already teenagers. And Joe had three wives and he had a son with the first, two sons with the second, and then a daughter, Alex, who lives in Australia and was very, they were all very helpful. I was able to interview all the children except um, Josie, Johanna, the one who died in the 70s, mm -hmm. tragically young in her 30s. And they didn't all go into the movie business, but they're all really smart, really witty and, and fun to interview. And of course, you oh, see that. on TCM and Josh on Dateline, those are Frank's two sons. Mm. Um, and Tom was a, a very successful screenwriter. And so was, is John Mankiewicz, who is Don's son. Don became, Don is Herman's, Don was the oldest of all the children. And he was born in 1922 and he was a screenwriter and a television writer and his son John has carried that on and has been very successful as a screenwriter and producer. Of course there's a, a superb scene in London where um, uh, Joe is shooting something in the studio, uh, I think it's Sleuth isn't it, he's shooting Sleuth on one, on one stage and then Tom is has written Live and Let Die and they've got six or seven stages right. occupied. Yes, the interesting thing about that, that's when Tom turned 30 and they had a, a 30th birthday party for him. And Joe was proud of his success, but I think Joe was so competitive that it had been in the same area, the same sort of intellectual, more intellectual um, work. He might not have been so supportive of Tom, but it was such a different area. James Bond movie was not a, a Joe movie at all. Yeah, he would never have he would he would never have got into that. So yeah. Well, he sort of did with Cleopatra, you know, a big spectacle, but right. He could sort of say, Well, that's not my thing. I would never do that. And then later in life, when he was complaining about the good old days, he was always complaining, Well, I could have said, I won't say the words, but you know, all those words and I didn't because we couldn't. And so we had to be more, which is what they all say, and it's not untrue.
I mean, he gets a reputation quite early on as as someone who write who makes good mu- movies or writes good movies uh, for women. You know, he, we have the Philadelphia story earlier, and and you have these great roles for women. And he also has a series of relationships with with his his stars, which um, uh, which kind of seems to be par for the course in that era of Hollywood. Although you sort of we look at Askance at it uh, uh, now, uh, especially. You know, in its in its grubbier aspects, shall we say? And yet, at the same time, as I was reading through, I was thinking, bloody hell, he's got some great performances out of the out of the fellas as well. I mean, you've got um, Sleuth, which of course is Martin Kane and Laurence Olivier. You've got Rex Harrison, who, as well as being a great actor, has got to be one of the most difficult actors ever to grace the screen. Burton, you know, with all his problems, is one of the best actors. I think ever. So he's he's and and Brando, and of course. Why am I forgetting Brando? Brando Ice. doing Shakespeare. Yes. yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, he really was a wonderful director. And um, with Rex Harrison, he did four movies. And Rex Har- he considered Rex Harrison the uh, Stradivarius, he, he, an amazing high comedy actor who was extremely meticulous and a horrible, horrible human being. I recently read something about. How he wasn't as bad at the beginning of his career, but I guess by the time I encountered him encountering Joe, which was in the 40s, I don't think he was terrible in the 40s. He, uh, Joe um, directed him in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, and then mm. in Escape, which was based on a Galsworthy play, and then later in um, Cleopatra, and what was the one in between? I'm, I can't remember. Oh, The Honeypot, Cleopatra, and then mm. The Honeypot. And Harrison was really a loathsome person and very difficult, but very committed to his craft. And so was Joe. And he could handle Joe's complicated dialogue like no one else could. So Joe put up with him. But when then when they were casting Sleuth, Harrison's name came up and Joe said, you know, my wife and my agent said they will kill me if we cast Harrison. We are absolutely just stay away from him because <laughs> he was so difficult. And Burton he had not worked with Burton and he was very impressed with his work. Although he said at some point um, when Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton started having their affair, it's fine. Elizabeth is beginning to sound more British, but does Burton have to sound more like Eddie Fisher, <laughs> like New York? <laughs> I guess with their ear, it's hard for them not to pick up what they're around. Right, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting that the very first scene that he's shooting with Burton, Burton's drunk and uh and he's sort of having to sort of shepherd him through the through the shots um I I yeah that and 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 to go back for a second to Brando I mean he's doing Brando but he's not doing Brando in a Tennessee Williams play or in the wild one he's doing Brando in Shakespeare which is a huge sort of reach in terms of public expectation rather than Brando technically as an actor um, and then he does, and then he does him in a musical. I mean, it's like you're, you're, that's really sort of a circle into square, you know, a circular peg into square holes. Right. He, he, they like stretching. And Brando yeah. was intimidated both times. And Joe, you know, sort of gentled him along and supported him. And Brando and uh, Gene Simmons both worked very hard on their singing and they got dubbed. Oh, no, they didn't get dubbed. They, they thought they were going to be dubbed, but then. Uh, Goldwyn decided it was better to have their own voices 
and uh, Frank Sinatra was very frustrated on that movie because he was the singer and Brando had the romantic singing lead. Uh, yeah, the brilliant, that's, that's a lovely part where the, everybody's trying to say, Frank, did you, you know, could you sing it as a comedy piece rather than as a romantic piece? And everybody's like, no, I'm not telling Frank, Frank Sinatra how to sing. <laughs> another, another statement that I don't think I should say, but you can go yourself <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that wave is very uh, it's very very um yeah i mean that that's that's the thing i get the feeling that this was a guy who in a way that the as i said i i had didn't have that filmography in my head but as i was reading going through the book i was thinking wow that's amazing what it's a series of real achievements yes yes i don't know which are your favorites but i really like the the um, a letter to three wives, by the way. Besides all about mm. it, it's a really wonderful movie. As is no way out when Joe gave Sidney Poitier his um, debut in in film. Yeah, it's, I... it's one of the few movies about race. Now I'm white, so I could be missing things that are, you know, unpalatable today. But it's I don't cringe when I watch it, as opposed to just about every other movie about race. Yeah, yeah. I just watched that Humphrey Bogart movie, Knock on Any Door, which is about juvenile delinquency and it has mm. a sort of, uh, um, uh, from a Hispanic sort of point of view, and it's, and it's just so, yeah, the word cringe is probably the right word, I think. I mean, it's, it's and also, heart I mean, in the right place and all that. Yes, I mean, not only anybody who's not white, but when, especially when you get to the 60s, the women, it's very painful for to me to, to me to watch the women who are very tough, often in 40s movies, get dialed back in the 50s and even more in the 60s when their heads are down and they're looking up adoringly at the men. Took a while to, to undo that. Still yeah, a well, even, oh, oh, yeah. That and Will Smith both. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, that was just the end of his Instagram apology that he gave. I'm a work in progress. You're 56 oh. years old, man. Grow, grow yeah. up. You're dumb. Um, uh, but the, um, yeah, the, uh, um, the well, we're talking about the, the roles of women, I mean, I think even as you get into the 70s, when you get the new Hollywood and everything, you know, w women sort of may become maybe a little bit more central here and there. But they, they tend to, to, to be beaten up and raped a hell of a lot in, in 70s movies. There's, yep. a, you know, there's a heck of a lot of victimization of women rather than, rather than sort of giving a whole spectrum of, of lived experience. Yes, and, and I think a lot of creative people would say that's the eye on the bottom line, thinking that that's what the market wants. You know, they don't want to see women being strong. Oh, men won't go to those. And, I don't know if that's true, but yeah, it's painful for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do a little uh, film club for my university students and where uh, every, every week we do a movie and after a while, uh, one of the women who, who does a, a, a mature student in her forties. And she said to me, um, Oh, can we do a movie where the women aren't treated so badly? And I was sort of thinking, well, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, we've done Raging Bull, which is definitely, uh, and we've done the piano with Jane Jane Campion's The Piano, which is definitely, you know, not exactly a woman being treated well, although she sort of gains agency over her life. 
uh, and um, <laughs> I've decided on All About Eve as <laughs> my... Uh... Oh, yes. Yes, it's three, not, three mean, fortress it's, of women. Yeah, it's very fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 um it's women beware women. You know, to quote Thomas Middleton, it's that you know, yeah, just just um, passing the Bechdel test doesn't necessarily mean that you're that you're not going to see women being in difficult situations. Well, one of the interesting things about all about Eve is the character of Karen the wife of the playwright who right. Eve snakes and, you know, is, is going to have Lloyd marry her. And Joe was very proud of that because he was very proud of portraying the wife too, as he called it, even back when the movie was made. Um, he, he did, he collaborated on this book. They published the screenplay and he talked about Karen's plight. She's been there from the beginning. She was very helpful when they were a team, when he was a nobody. But once he became somebody, he's surrounded by the most beautiful women in the world. So this is, would be in movies even more than theaters, I suppose, competing for him and, and sometimes seducing him. And even if they're not trying to seduce him, he's around them and she's powerless. And he understood that. And while he was doing that, he was married to a woman who was in that situation. His That second wife, when he did All About Eve, was a former actress who wanted to go back to acting had terrible mental problems and, and emotional problems. And Joe was running around having affairs with people like Linda Darnell and Judy Garland all over the place. So he was putting his wife through a situation that he understood very well. So he used it in his art, but he didn't correct it in life. Oh, isn't that always the way? Isn't that always the way? I guess, I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, later on in his life, he sort of does express regrets for how he, he's behaved in that way. He sort of says he's, you know, there's a certain wisdom that settles, settles in at some point. Well, I don't know about that. I would say Rosemary said she kept a tight. Rosemary was one of the people he was having an affair with and gaslighting his, his wife, Rosa. And she said, I kept a tight rein on him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, that's a little bit more of Orson Welles's fabulism right there. <laughs> sort of self-justifying, and yeah, absolutely. So, um, sorry, uh, you, you, what was, what is your favorite? What was your favorite Herman screenplay? I mean, uh, aside from Citizen Kane, what would you suggest somebody go out and find to to sort of see something else of of Herman Mankiewicz? Well, the one of the best known is um, the, the Lou Gehrig story, The Pride of the Yankees. It's kind of thin and it makes me, mm. it's, I mean, you can't, I've watched it, I don't know how many times and I cry every time. You can't not cry when, when uh, Lou Gehrig, Gary, Gary Cooper is standing in Yankee Stadium saying goodbye to the fans. It <laughs> chokes me mm. up now, but it's kind of a thin <laughs> story. Gary Cooper, was a little long in the tooth to play the college age, Lou Gehrig. And, and there's a college scene where they have all these other, you know, he's, he's a waiter in a fraternity to earn his way. And I'm thinking, yeah, they all look old. I, I think they picked men that looked about Gary Cooper's age to make them look like they were in college, but that's a very touching um, movie. And he was nominated, his, the screenplay was nominated, although it did not win. And then there are these, minor little movies that I like that were B movies like My Dear Miss Aldrich, which was 1937, where um, Herman conceived of the whole 
uh, picture for Edna Mae Oliver, a character, a long-faced character actress who was terrific of the Margaret Hamilton kind of face, if you're not familiar with, with Edna Mae. And it was a newspaper uh, story. And so that was fun. And in his original screenplay, I, there are um, bits of it that are available in the Margaret Herrick Library, the Academy's library. So I could see all the things he wrote about women's rights and, and uh, there's a school teacher, Maureen O'Sullivan, I think, and, and she is a high school teacher. And so he has all these reflections about anytime anything gets fun, the men take those jobs away from the women so they can't be university teachers, et cetera. So it's very witty. A lot of that, of course, didn't get into the movies because it was too short. And then there's another, really silly movie I like called Rise and Shine. It's very Marx Brothers-y. It's like the early Marx Brothers movies and quite silly. It's got Jimmy Durante. It's got Linda Darnell as a high school teacher. It's got George Murphy as her boyfriend, even though he was 20 years older and he tap dances in it. It's just silly, like a Marx Brothers movie. That's 1941 and they're kind of hard to find, but they're my favorites, some of my favorites. And what, what about Joe uh, Mankiewicz? If you were if you're sort of pushing t someone towards maybe one of his le maybe lesser known films that you that you would like to promote? You mean besides uh, A Letter to Three Wives, which was it was 1949 and All About Eve was the with well, a record setting. It hasn't been broken yet. 14 Academy Award nominations and it was Best Picture. And um, the year before and Joe won writer and director. Uh, Academy Awards for it. The year before he won Writer and Director Academy Awards for A Letter to Three Wives. It's the record that has not been exceeded. And it's a portrait of three marriages. And there, it's really delightful. And again, it's one of those movies that lasts. It's, it's fun to watch. And he has a lot of uh, issues about class in it, a lot of comedy, a lot of poignant scenes. I also loved Five Fingers, which is a based on a true life spy story the valet to the english ambassador in turkey during world war ii stole a lot of documents and fed them to the germans and it had the minutes from all the you know like yalta conferences it had d-day plans it was such good information intelligence that the germans thought it was um a plant and didn't use it <laughs> So he took this and, and starred James Mason as the, the spy and Daniel Derrieu as the, an invented character. There wasn't a, a woman in, in the real story, but it's delightful. It's fun, it's suspenseful, mm -hmm. and it's witty because it's Joe. He, you know, there's always a lot of wit. So I like that one too. And No Way Out gonna... with, with, her, with uh, Sidney Poitier and Richard Widmark, who is so evil is the white racist and Linda Darnell who had a, a meatier role than she usually had. So that's a very powerful, painful movie. I love the story that you write in the book of Richard Widmark apologizing to Sidney Poitier after, after he delivers every sort of right. racist epithet, epithet. And it's like Poitier had to say, it's okay, man. I know, I know this is a script. I'm an actor. I'm okay. You know? Yes. I think that says a lot about Widmark. Right. And Poitier said right. he, Richard Widmark was the first, he and his wife were the first people to invite Sidney uh, Poitier into their home and they became lifelong friends. So yeah, that was it. Yeah. That was the story. He's he's a I, I don't know if he's I would say he's an underappreciated actor with Mark, but he's certainly he's certainly one of those actors I love to see pop up, mm -hmm. you know. 
Yes, and as usual, I think he wanted to be a good guy more. And of course, he was such a good, bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it always the case? Um, uh, Brilliant. Uh, One more question, Sydney, if I may. Uh, Your uh, recommended book, please, for our listeners. Okay, so recommended book, you put that in the singular. And of course, it's really hard to stop, right? Don't so believe me. I, no, no, what none of my guests uh, has ever actually recommended one single book. It's always right, okay. two or three or four. Right. So, okay, good. I'm glad you said four because I thought, okay, so currently one of the books I just listened to, and it's really more about theater than movies, but it's Harvey Firestein's I Was Better Last Night. It just came out okay. and he reads it in the audio version, and it's delightful. And he does talk about the movies. And it's very, uh, as a writer, I was really interested in the way he structured it. And I don't want to do a spoiler about that, but that was very touching. And Robert Gottlieb's book, Garbo, that's one you would want to look at because it's very handsome. In fact, the the stock is Mm. so, it's a really heavy book about Greta Garbo, who is still so weirdly fascinating. You know, you can't figure out whether there's there there. So he he, he intertwines looking for the there in Garbo and the cultural reaction to her. So I like those two. And then a couple of slightly older books. I loved Hank and Jim by Scott Iman, which is about the friendship between Henry Fonda and James Stewart, which was a 50 year friendship. And Scott Iman got very good access to a lot of sources and it's really very touching. So he goes through their movie careers, but also a portrait of these two actors. And last, a really old, really old it was 1980 I think John Houston's memoir an uh, open book that man is so fascinating and his life was so fascinating and he's a wonderful writer so he talks about the making of some of his movies but he also tells all these other stories that who knows if they're really true the way he tells them but they're utterly fascinating to read about his life so that's my my one book recommendation <laughs> I think Houston is a little bit like Wells as well. That he was such a good storyteller that he would fall in love with his own stories and even he wouldn't know if they were true or not by the time he'd finished. Well, that's actually one of the hardest parts about reporting and, and doing a biography, disentangling all the versions. And especially with Hollywood, I found they're all storytellers. So the stories have been embellished and retold. And some of the stories where everyone says they were there they couldn't possibly have been there. You might have just said, I said, if everyone were there, it would have had to take place in the Hollywood Bowl. You know, it's this, this, and everyone couldn't have been there. If everyone was at, you know, CeeLo Drive, the day of the, the night of the Manson murders, everybody, the, the number of people who said they were about, they were invited and they didn't go for one reason or oh. another. It was like, there there are like, there's 50 or 60 people, Steve McQueen, you know, loads and loads of them. And it's just like, yeah, no, yeah. Some of you are just making that up. (laughs) Well, you existed tonight, right? So you were in the same city. So you're related. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you knew where it was. (laughs) You know the address. You've driven by it. Exactly. Well, probably not because he's in a cul-de-sac. So you you wouldn't know. Right. Unless you were, unless you were visiting Rick Dalton in the Tarantino-esque universe of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Liz and Sydney, that was that's so so nice of you to spend some time with me uh, talking about uh, the Mankovich Mankovich brothers. Oh, um, so much fun! Thank you. I mean, I learned a I lot. Re- from you. I really appreciate it.
that was my conversation with Sydney. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly found it incredibly fascinating and informed and it's just always such a such a pleasure to talk to to somebody who knows their stuff as as indeed all these writers do having worked on having worked on their subjects for several years sydney's recommended books were harvey fast steins uh, i was better last night robert gottlieb's garbo scott iman's another dual biography hank and jim uh, about uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda's friendship, and John Huston's autobiography, An Open Book, which I have since recording the episode bought, so I've got that on my shelf of books to read. Unfortunately, it's unlikely that I can get John on the podcast, but who knows? Who knows? Special thanks go to Ali Howard for the artwork and Elliot Atkins for the music, and thanks to you, the listener. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.